0: Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy—strategy—wow, maybe I've been messing up every intro. Maybe we're also strat- <laughs> Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host Carl, and with me, as always, is Aton live from the Consumer Electronics Show. Hello, Aton.
1: I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm in a hotel that is in the same street as the Consumer Electronics Show, but yeah, I mean I'm. Dialing in from Vegas in one of the swankiest hotel rooms I've ever had. Turns out that the hotel I'm staying at, it's a part of like Marriott and apparently I have like status in Marriott and
0: it's pretty nice.
1: But how are you? Happy
0: New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, I am good. I am about to start a new job at the end of, mo- end of the month. I'm not going to talk about it on air because we, early on in our podcast, decided not to talk about our... Direct professional lies on air, but I'm starting a new job. Boop, boop. Uh, TBD will uh, fill more information in obliquely over the next few months. <laughs> but, yeah, excited to not be unemployed anymore and currently gearing up for, like, the, store of the storm of the century in San Francisco. I don't know. The San Francisco weather's been terrible. How about you? You've been in Mexico City. Now you're in Las Vegas. You're gonna go back to Mexico City. How are your holidays? Yeah, it's been good. The,
1: the holiday flight flights were so expensive, and we are privileged and lucky enough that our job is remote, that we are yep. just spending a month in Mexico. Um, I spend a lot of time reading, and actually, your strategy uh, uh, thing actually reminded <laughs> me of something that I want to talk to you about because. I'm reading this book. I'm almost finished with this book called "Bubble" from Eraf Kwang. Have you heard about this book? No. Okay. the the full The full title of this book is "Bubble," or "The Necessity of Violence: An Arcane History of the Oxford Translators' Revolution," and it's this fiction fictional book that it's set in the early nineteenth century in England. So this is like the height of colonialist England, and it's this story where basically there is magic in this world, and where the magic mm-hmm. comes from is from whenever you translate a word from one language to the other, whatever meaning gets lost of that translation, because there are so many words of course that have no direct translation, or isn't like an apple and a manzana, whatever meaning is lost can be infused into silver, and that meaning gets manifested into the world. So if there is a match pair of a word in Chinese that means like speed and move forward, and then uh-huh. you write that next to the word speed, a silver bar with that would help a carriage move forward on its own. But all of this happens within the backdrop of like the height of colonialist England, and how yeah. the power that they have, so the power of the silver and the magic, comes from their ability to control the languages of the colonies that they have, and and like it's just like in all of these interesting. super interesting thing, and Oxford University has this like translators institute where all of the power of the of the empire comes from, and it's great read. It's been in a lot of lists for best books of twenty twenty two. Highly recommended to everyone. And it reminded me of you when you said strategy because I was like maybe strategy makes something and strategy means something else, and we're gonna make up the the magic that exists in, in, in between those two words.
0: Interesting. It sounds like, I don't know, like the. Uh, it's like, it sounds like his dark Mysteri- materials fic- mixed with uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell mixed with the Ted Chong short story about uh, animating objects by writing words on paper. It's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, know. sounds good. It's different than
1: his dark materials just because it's apart from this little thing where silver helps a little bit with life, it's, yeah. it's in this world. Pretty it's in England, yeah. it's in China, yeah. it's during the Poppy War, like, opium. Like, everything is, like, still rounded in reality, if you will. But it has, like, this little science, historical fiction twist. So, yeah. anyway. Highly recommend. That's what I spend most of my, my time during the holidays. What about you? What what materials and type of art forms no. did you consume? Well, uh,
0: I had a plain movie, first of all, I want to talk Ooh, about. Yes. I finally watched... Um, a stop motion film on Netflix. You watch that, it on the plane. Uh, people have been waiting, telling me to see from a established director that I was excited to see from a Latin
1: American country. Did you watch it on a plane?
0: Well, actually, uh, this was this is Windle and Wild. I still haven't watched Pinocchio yet. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was very good. <sighs> I downloaded Windle and Wild and Pinocchio for the plane, and started with Wendell and Wild and watched it was intrigued the whole way through and then was really tired so I fell asleep instead of watching Pinocchio, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, I'll watch it on the big screen at home. That's fine.
1: Okay, my story of playing <laughs> movies, just very quickly, is I love the town, but it's a-
0: Yeah, the Affleck movie? I, yeah. I haven't seen it, That's a blind spot. Oh,
1: you should wait, it's fantastic. But it's such a, well, maybe just for me, it's such a bad plane movie because in Mexico, it's in English, but it's not available yeah. with subtitles. Mm-hmm. And Affleck and Renner do these like super thick Boston accents that yeah. have been you know, taken through the grinder of the cultural machine and broken down. But between that and between you know, the noise of the plane and the things and not having subtitles, it's not a great plane movie. Like this, I think this was a miss by the programmers of Iron Mexico, especially without subtitles. subtitles. Because like, what? I've seen this movie, I know what happens. And I can't tell what they're saying. That
0: is... Yeah, I, I feel like we watched something recently. There was some movie we watched that was heavily accented and that there were no subtitles. And it was just... It, it's amazing how your brain gets so used to reading things and not, really not trying to, to process it. Much less on a plane where there's... Even if you have noise-canceling headphones, there are a million things distracting you from having a good experience. One hundred percent. So yeah, that sounds rough.
1: Yeah, um, but I interrupted you. What else did you indulge?
0: Yeah, um, I don't know. It was it was a lot of kind. I didn't really do too much intellectual in terms of what I've been reading. Uh, what you were or watching, what you just mentioned, uh, actually reminded me of a book my in-laws got me, which was a a book. It's The first translation of the first edition of the Brothers Grimm. Okay. So this is probably what you're talking about. Contemporary, but German academia to the time period that you're talking about in in Babel, the, the fictional time period. So do you know where the Brothers Grimm stories come from? I did not. Like, what is your understanding of who they were and like what these stories were?
1: Uh... German academics. Uh, I would assume a version of, like, older folk, folk tales that they took and yeah. completely make, like, made them way darker, but I'm not sure.
0: That is honestly more than I knew. I, I thought that they were just two kind of weird brothers that wrote strange, cursed <laughs> short stories, right? <laughs> but they were actually legal scholars who studied under a professor who was really into jurisprudence and thought that you had to really understand the history and the regional histories of certain folk in order to interpret law as it was meant to be interpreted, as it was written. And these two brothers ended up hearing a lot of folk stories and deciding to write them down. And that's what the first edition of the Brothers Grimm stories was, was really just kind of a collected catalog of anthropological works. And what we know now uh, as the Brothers Grimm stories is kind of the sixth or seventh edition of the the one brother just continually tweaking and reading and making the stories better. Wow! So, what this book is is it's very bare bones and just kind of like all the stories, and some of them are literally just like reading really like an Aesop fable, and some of them are a bit more detailed. But it's really cool. I I it's been interesting reading kind of the the pure uncut bare bones version of these stories. Uh, so, was reading well. through that quite a bit. It was cool.
1: That's so interesting. It's definitely on the same vein of, in Babel, they talk about how in order for some of these match pairs to work on silver, yeah. the person not only needs to know both languages, but they need to mm. understand them well enough to understand the connotations and the cultural background and where it came from for something to work. And it sounds like, from your explanation of this, it sounds like that's what they wanted to do with some of these early tales, like use... Get to that level of understanding of how a community thinks and where their values come from to try to understand them better yeah. uh, I think it's it gets into so many interesting places of there is this line on the book that says that every translation is treason and where they come from is that if you are yeah. someone that is a native speaker of the work that you're translating, yeah. Just the, I mean, they break it down, of course, through like this axiom, but the, that you're basically, is both an act of opening up something that was yours for someone that is not you, mm-hmm. so that then people can either use it for good or they could use it for bad because they want to understand you better. Yeah. But also, you are actively trying to fit it into a language that just the way languages work. Is not gonna represent everything that the original word was trying to convey. So that even if it's done for good reasons, translation is treason. And it's a very interesting interesting context. Like it doesn't get into the, you know, negatives and positives of ethics and the yeah, yeah. Global world and how to communicate. But it's an interesting connotation that for some of these things, like without knowing, right? They might be using this for good, the brother Grimm's. But like if there were scholars that were trying to actually, you know, bring a specific jurisprudence into this Places Great. and use it against them by saying like, "Hey, now I know how you think." And if I use this fable or this something, which I don't know. Oh wow, what an intense holiday uh,
0: break we have! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, there are two new releases that we do need to speak about. Uh, I'll, I'll quickly say something about Wonder Woman Wild, which is it's Jordan Peele's greatest flaws as a director is that he has too many good ideas. Okay. And Wendell the Wild is clearly a Henry Salek work. Like It does feel like a, it's in the vein of Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach. But uh, so much of the story does clearly seem like Jordan Peele's story um, in terms of there's a lot about the prison industrial complex and family. And there's a lot of really interesting ideas baked into it. But every five minutes, of the movie wildly becomes something else. And I think it's tricky to follow and be as cohesive as he might want but it's worth seeing i I recommend watching it but not as highly as you keep recommending me watch pinocchio which i will watch
1: no no i i will i will i have it on my list both on
0: letterboxd and on netflix so but Um, the the films i think we need to talk about uh are we need to talk about avatar and glass onion the way of water yes that is within you
1: and connects everything
0: and yeah is it within you that, or did you, Do you, uh, were you ex- it's, exhilarated to be back in Pandora?
1: I was so exhilarated to be back in Pandora, but I have to say, like, that line, it's terrible. <laughs> it's like the weakest, I mean, I wouldn't say the weakest, it has a lot of parts that are like very specifically like, what? But it feels taken out of a cereal box. But uh, I had a lot of fun. Like, it's one of those movies that it feels a little bit like... You know, the typical that we use now is The Force Awakens in terms of, like, yeah. a remake of Any Hope, or just you change some things a little bit, but it's still, okay. like, it's still humans, it's still fish out of water, learning a new way of living, so in the forest, in the water, getting the people from there to trust you, coming to help you. But it has, like, that familiar undertone that the first yeah. one didn't have that I think it really helps. I think it's very similar to Avatar in the sense that the first third it's quite weak. <laughs> and it, the first minute, like, just, it's blunt, right? They get you into it. They, they're like, hey, this was the last seven years or whatever. And you're like, wait, wait, what? Yeah. But then, like, 20 minutes in, you're like, oh, I get it. Now I'm mean, again. I, I remember this 3D. I remember this world. But um, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought the action is great. I think it looks fantastic. I don't think I saw it in a theater. I don't know if Mexico has. And I'm sure you'll talk about this.
0: The frame rate changes. Yeah. You would know but, if you did. It was very noticeable. Oh, okay. Talk about it.
1: Okay. Um, but it was super fun. And it was also interesting because I went to see it with all of my family. So yeah. me, Ariela, my brothers, their girlfriends, and my mom. And we all, had like, we all have, like, very different perspective on movies. You know? Like, my mom likes everything. My brother falls asleep in 85% of things. Um, some people like art. And, and everyone came out to me we were like, wow, that was a lot of fun. Like, everyone. And the movie theater was full. It was like a Wednesday night premiere, 9 p.m. Mexico City. Um, But those are the high-level tidbits. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I saw it with Alex. Uh, It's just the two of us. We saw it, we were originally going to see it on an IMAX screen here in SF. We caught caught up in all that uh, Southwest nonsense last week. So we saw it on a Dolby screen in Houston because if I'm going to see it on a on a smaller screen, I'd rather it be a Dolby screen than a than a sure. fake IMAX. So sure. with that, uh we we talked about it at length. Like I liked it a lot, she liked it a lot, but to to me the the film kind of feels like Elvis, where it's a much more successful film than Elvis, I think, in terms of being a cohesive film. But some of the most amazing stuff I've seen on screen this year is in is in Avatar: The Way of Water, and then you'll just have like I don't know a blue Navi teenager calling a marine a butthole, and it's like really the screenplay is just so bro. stupid at times, and or bro or a baby girl, yeah, it's like oh, come on, the, the screenplay is really weak, and I, I think something that <laughs> you you just have to laugh at the audacity of James Cameron sometimes uh, early on in the film. Jake Sully says, I've gotten so good at speaking Navi that it feels like English. And then all the subtitles disappear. disappear. yeah. <laughs> right? Which is a useful conceit because later on they're using sign language for quite a bit of the movie. And that then becomes subtitled. So I think it makes it cleaner. But that said, so much of the power of the subtitles in the first film is that a lot of the language feels a lot more poetic than it is. Like, your brain just reads it and imbues power because it's written in papyrus, so it's like, "Ooh, this must be poetic." <laughs> and then when you're just reading the English translations and seeing an speak that, not as good, <laughs> not as interesting. Um, I felt the same. the The first the first hour really does feel I don't know, kind of like a sub Halo first person shooter. Not very good. Not very interesting. Especially that monorail action sequence. Oof, not not good.
1: <laughs> There's not even any water. In yeah. The
0: first hour. I thought no. there was a wave of water. Yeah. God, the the shot of like the first time you're so all of a sudden you're just underwater and then somebody's diving into the water, you're like, ah, it's the water. It's happening. <laughs> yeah. it's good. That's when the movie gets good. And and I think the, the last half hour is kind of frustratingly there and, and not needed. But there is a good thirty to forty minutes of action uh early on in the third act that is incredible with the uh mm-hmm. uh what is it? Um uh, the Tulkun? Tulkun, thank you. I was like, thats <laughs> that Tulkun Rock.
1: The Tulkun Hunter yes. sequences.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the, the frame rate. So we saw it in a theater that d- was equipped for high frame rate. And the switching back and forth between the frame rates is the real issue. Like, what happens every once in a while is like, It'll switch to like underwater photography and camera will jack the frame rate right up to 48 FPS and that transition moment is whenever everything starts feeling weird because it's like oh I'm watching a soap opera this is weird like nothing has motion blur everything looks too hyper realistic but then you get used to it and you're watching it for five minutes and then something will be in 24 FPS and your brain will or at least in my case my brain is like why is everything laggy is something wrong with the stream? <laughs> Because your brain's (laughs) used to getting 48 images in a second, and then it goes back to 24, and your brain slows down a little bit, and it's confused. So I wish you would have committed one way or another. I think that it's the best use of high frame rate that I've seen, and nothing felt fake because of it, necessarily, except for just kind of the aesthetic experience. It's not like looking at some of the Hobbit films that were shot in high frame rate, where it looks like people wearing rubber masks. Like, they got past that. But overall, I was just impressed. At never once during the movie was I frustrated because it looked bad. Like truly astounding looking effects.
1: And yeah, sure. there's been yeah there there's been even some comparisons versus the last Avatar. Yeah, and it's crazy already how like we thought that one looked, you know, good for the time and twelve years now. Uh, so on the frame rate, do you know? If the third one he wanted to make it all in 48 or all in 24 and was this kind of his test or
0: so originally he was talking about shooting in even higher frame rates but for him he likes being able to switch back and forth between the two for to have different pronounced effects and also he's working on isolating certain things so certain things will be in 24 and certain things will be in 48 I think that's might be where he's testing and what he's testing in the third one. So, I don't expect this to be generationally better looking next in 2 years when the third one comes out. Okay. Um I I really recommend on kind of a different note go listen to the DGA podcast between your boy Guillermo and James Cameron. Really great 30-minute conversation. Okay. I will. I will.
1: the The last thing on Avatar before we move on to the to the other movie. Um. I thought Neytiri's character. I remember on the first movie, like really liking her, and in this movie, it, sounds, yeah. it, it seems like they they more intentionally made her a side character, and rely on her to be both kind of the emotional center, but also the, kind of this villainy side on the Navi mm-hmm. side that is really against humans. And it seems like they're really ratcheting up both of those sides so that she can bring them into the story. Then I would be curious to see her taking on of a more main character role in the next yeah. movie so that it feels a little more, both even killed, but also because she's so much more, I think it's so much more interesting that Jake Sully. I get that she wasn't a human before, so the story can't be on her. But um, there seems to be an hour that we could do on her and just leave Jake Sully
0: somewhere on an island. Um, I, I totally agree. I, I think this film was, on the whole, better acted than the, the previous one. I think Tim Worthington did a lot more interesting work here. I do think that Zoe Saldana is the undersung hero uh, of the performances. Like, she's incredible. The one that truly feels like she's inhabiting that character as opposed to, you know, being Sigourney Weaver, playing a teenager and playing an alien. Like, Yep. Uh, Natiri is... So well done, and scary Nateri at the end is really scary and really, really scary. well done. Uh, I think the MVP for me, uh, I can't remember the, the actor's name, but the kid who plays Spider, the human that lives amongst the, the Na'vi, that kid is scrambling up walls with a bunch of blue Na'vi and convincingly like interacting with them, talking to them. He is often the only human on screen in most of the scenes he's in, and... There's not a, kind of a false note in how he's interacting with anything or doing anything. Like, yeah. Incredibly impressive performance because it's an impossible role he's playing and it goes off seamlessly. Even though, obviously, a lot of the bad dialogue is his and that's not his fault. Bro. Bro. Bro, bro.
1: Um, we're on a tight schedule here. So you want to talk a little bit about the, the crystal yeah, 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 vegetable? Yeah. Is the onion a vegetable? He's not even a vegetable.
0: What is I mean, I guess it's technically a vegetable. It's not a legume. It's not a fruit. It's a root vegetable, okay. right? The, Do they grow underground? The, I don't know how it needs grow. <laughs> yeah.
1: You watch Glass onion, right? I saw you I watched about Glass the
0: about the title font. Yeah. Section. Yeah. What did you think? Didn't like it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I it's clever. So a good comparison point for me is the film Confess Fletch, which I don't think you've seen, right? No. Okay, I, I watched that on a plane a few weeks ago. It was great. And Confess Fletch has a bunch of interesting, well acting characters and kind of a dumb plot to string them all along. Whereas I find Glass Onion has an incredibly intelligent and inventive and clever plot that is hung on the back of pretty uninteresting, tropey characters. Benoit Blanc being the exception. I think every time Benoit Blanc is on screen, Craig's doing even better this this film. And is. I loved watching Craig in this role and inhabit this character. And he brought some warmth and kindness and humor to it. And also, I think, fr- fuddy-duddiness and frustration, especially when he's irritated with these people. I think that comes through a lot more than in the first one. And I think it's a lot more fun for that. But But overall, I found this film to be pretty flatly shot or whatever it was being flashy often flashy for no reason except for whenever the lights are out and it's kind of this uh, Fogiallo sort of the lamplight lamplight thing. thing like I, I really liked that but for the best part I found this to be a flat to garish looking movie often often intentionally so but this felt like a paycheck for everyone involved except for maybe Daniel Craig and that made me a pretty what? sad Two hundred and twenty
1: million dollar paycheck? What was it? Four hundred for four hundred and
0: fifty for two? No, I think I think him and Ryan each got a hundred for two. So fifty each for each film, I think. No. I don't remember.
1: Do hang out in an island in Greece. Um Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. For me it was like I'm a I'm a sucker for mystery, like, you know, who don't no. movies. I really like more than the Orient Express and Dead on the Nile, sure. they are like just that part of adding that part, that um, kind of experience on top of the movie of like let's figure this out. I thought the you know how I told you before you saw it that it took on a lot more things from the first one than I thought it was gonna take. Yes, it, you know probably you realize but it's things like okay, an hour in, you still don't understand exactly what you're yep. solving. Here is kind of the same thing. It touches on on similar questions of wealth.
0: No. D- different
1: level, right? This is kind of an Elon Musk situation. The other one is a lot more about like uh, white upper-class families' treatment of immigrants or however they decide to grow. But that felt a little bit similar. Of course, the difference being that this is all around what is what's his line it's just so dumb like benio Blanc is actively disgusted that he's even there yes because he's just a series of unfortunate not unfortunate events like just dumb <laughs> things that happen to fall in in a way that kind of makes sense and he's just like why am i even here um it feels a little bit i don't know if the word is sillier foreigner like it leans in way more on the comedy that I think it helps in a lot of places. I think in a lot of places, to your point, I think it like it's a very similar story to the there's been a couple of movies, right? The Triangle of Sadness. Yeah. I haven't watched the menu, but apparently it's like very similar. Yeah. And in terms of stories. But I think Netflix probably got what they want. I had my hot they take did. that was wrong, that they it's still number one. Matilda is number two. Uh it sounds like it's gonna end up number three of all time after Red Notice and yeah whatever number two is. Not that nobody cares about what Red Notice even did. Um, but, yeah, I have to say, it was very fun to watch it in a theater, I think I told you. Yeah. Like, it being packed and that reaction and people even just laughing anytime time Beno Blanc spoke because he speaks in, in his specific way. Um,
0: watching it at home on streaming made it feel like I was just watching a Netflix movie of the week. And I think part of that's the, the aesthetic being, being this kind of flatter, more digital aesthetic often. Um, quite a few, feels a lot more cliffhangery, and and um, like every 10 minutes, there's like a, a big music swell. So like designed for you to pause it and go to the bathroom or like <laughs> turn it on the next day. Just, I didn't find it very filmic in a way that I found frustrating. And even, like, Ryan has one of the best DPs and one of the best kind of more independent composers in the the industry. And, like, Nathan Johnson's score for Nightmare Alley is one I loved last year. And this, or I guess two years ago now, this one just felt like he was on autopilot, felt like the DP just was kind of not doing his usual shtick in terms of like making things look rich and, and not oversaturated digital. I just, I didn't like how it looked. I didn't care about the characters and I was really disappointed by it. But I'm glad you yeah. liked it. I wouldn't like not recommend people watch it because it is like baseline entertaining for a few hours and better and smarter than most things you could watch. But not my thing. Yeah.
1: I think for me, it's probably... Especially because I rewatched it with Ariella and her parents. I think the last 20 minutes really bring it down. Yeah. To like a three. Like that end... It makes no sense. It feels like they didn't know how to end it. Because part of me is like... I get Benoit's blank stick that he has to work in the police. But he saw it. He could testify. Yes. He can't work with the system. It, there is nothing... Preventing him from just being like, "Yeah, I saw the thing," and and then all of the things where she just starts breaking things. Why does she bring break the crystal? I was saying, not she just throw the thing to explode anyway?
0: The the ending, which I don't, we're not gonna get much more into it here. I will say the ending is what made it start feeling like like purely like a it's just like a made for TV movie. Like it just felt like they were filling time for no reason. And being zany for no reason. And I guess it went on so long that eventually I came back around to, I guess this is kind of funny. But ultimately, at that point in the movie, I was so disengaged. that I was like, I I don't really care about this or this character. (sighs) Yeah. No, makes sense. It's just, I, I bring up Confess Fletch because that's a movie that is a dumber movie. With, for the most part, less famous people in it but I enjoyed on the whole a lot more because I just liked hanging out with those characters. That's the sort of thing where it's like, I would watch a dozen of those movies on like cable. Hell yeah. That's great. Whereas this one, I'll probably watch the next one because Ryan's one of my guys, but I'm not going to be really jazzed about watching it. Yeah. no, well, makes sense. All right. So next week we'll dig in a little bit more into what's coming this year. Maybe a little bit look back from last year uh, Eitan and I have both been traveling and trying to figure out when to record. So this was the 30 minutes we could actually fit in this week. So next week, expect a more normal, more scheduled episode where we actually <laughs> dig into anything analytical as opposed to just babbling for 30 minutes. But thanks thanks sure. all for listening.
1: Yeah, it was great. I'm glad we catch up for 30 minutes. And we'll talk to you
0: next week. Yeah, have have fun at uh, CES. I hear the big thing this year is wireless headphones with touch screens on the case for some reason. So, oh, my yeah. God. I love CES Smart Newsweek. It's so stupid, or something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
1: i <laughs> oh, good on everyone.
0: Bye.